All right, this morning is Sunday. It is October 21st, Sunday morning. Our message is Gethsemane and the Olive Press. So if you're taking notes, you'll want to write that down. And an appropriate place to start here for us would be in a description that is something our ministry points out very often. But I thought I would go ahead and lay out the rationale for you this morning and show you by way of definitions and illustrations so that the whole church gets this. Some of you have been with me a very long time and some of you are with me a short time. And I remember from every so often that in an effort not to be too repetitious because I've suffered under that burden before, I sometimes am not repetitious enough. And so I assume that we've got parts that we don't have. So I wanted to explain some things to you. Greek thought and Hebrew thought are very, very different things. Most of us in here have been far more influenced by Greek thought than Hebrew thought. And I want to tell you right up front as a disclaimer so that nobody throws their hymnals at me. It is not wrong. The way that God designed us to think in the culture that we came up in, the way that we think tends to be linear. It tends to be descriptive. Point upon point. Logic upon logic. God made an entire people group of the world with an engineering-like mindset. And He uses that. And that's good. But when we're approaching a book that was not written in the Western Hemisphere, it was written in the Eastern Hemisphere, we need to realize that as much as God has ordained the way that we think and has used it, this is not the way that the people of the book thought. And if you've ever had children with differing temperaments or personalities, you cannot teach two children math the exact same way if they have vastly different concepts about the way that they think. You can't approach people as cookie cutters and expect that they will all get the same thing. Any educator can tell you this. And it's not always an indication of intelligence. Some of the more brilliant people in history did not learn traditionally. What does that mean, that they didn't learn traditionally? It means that they weren't put together just like everybody else. Isn't it uniqueness that we prize? Why do you like diamonds? Because they're everywhere? No, you like them because they're unique. Well, God's made us unique. And I'm excited about that. I'm thankful. I appreciate my heritage. But I need to understand that this book comes to me from a different perspective. Some of the ways that we might think about this, because it's difficult to change the way that you think. It's very, very difficult to approach something out of a paradigm that you don't have. So I wanted to give you a couple examples, then move to Scripture. If I were holding up a blue coffee cup here. Ah, look at this. Thank you, Adam. It's not blue, but it is a coffee cup. And you began, I said, what am I holding? In a group like this, the kind of common things that would happen is we would say, wow, you're holding a white coffee cup. It has flowers on it. It has uh, little birds and flies, and it's also got a green rim. We tend to think of descriptive. If you ask people in Israel who had been raised there, not raised in New York, made Aliyah to Israel, but raised in Israel, what are you holding? Without question, the first thing they would say is a container meant to hold coffee. That's what they would say. We tend to think in terms of description, and they tend to think in terms of function. You'll see this throughout the Bible. 
This causes us to miss very key passages, the true intent, because we have a hard time thinking in any different way than the way that we were raised. When you look at the Gospels of John and Matthew, Matthew is written primarily to a Hebraic setting. So festivals are not explained. Hebraic thought is often just left unexplained. When you read the Gospel of John, you often see something. Your English translators put John's thoughts about the Scripture in quotes. Like John 7.37 says, On the last and the greatest day of the feast, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, If any man thirst, let him come and drink of me. Well, the Hebrews understood exactly what that meant. Because every year, just like we know what happens at Christmas, they had a festival where a golden vessel was pouring into 12 earthen vessels. And it symbolized the presence of God. So when John says this, he realizes his audience is not Jewish. They don't necessarily think in terms of function, but more in description. And so we might not get it. And he says, he says this because the Holy Spirit had not been poured out on any of them yet. John puts for us footnotes. That's why I love the Gospel of John. But when we're reading texts that are not explained for us like that, it's different. Turn with me to Matthew 23. Tell me you haven't heard this one before. It's made its way into our culture. It's made its way into our common vernacular. And I can tell you I've not met more than a handful of preachers in my life that have any idea what it means. In Matthew 23, tell me when you're there. Woe to you teachers, this is Matthew 23, verse 23. Hey, church is supposed to be fun. It's okay that you laugh. It's okay that you cry. Most of all, this is supposed to be a joyous occasion. So y'all get out of lecture mode. It's not going to happen. I'm going to talk to you today. I want you to respond to me. Okay? One of my favorite songs recently, my little niece Rebecca has pretty well got it memorized is singing about what happens when we go to heaven. And it's making fun of a particular song called I Can Only Imagine. And it says, what will happen with the white people and the suburbanites? Will they pass out cold when they find out that you're not white? (laughs) The culture that we live in is different from God. Now, it reflects God in various ways, but God Himself represents all mankind. And yet, He poured himself into a first century Jew. So if we're going to approach him by way of the incarnation, God has dictated to us, understanding of him comes through the first century Jewish culture. It has to. With that in mind, we're in the 23rd verse. Actually, what I was thinking of earlier is there's a line in that song that says, come on, that makes even white preachers want to shout. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Mint, dill, cumin, are they valuable? Of course they are. Spices in the ancient world are very valuable. They're also things that you can carry up in front of everybody to the temple. There are things that everybody can notice that you give, and it doesn't take a whole lot of work on your part to bring them. How about your livestock, though? Who really knows whether or not you're bringing all of your livestock 
to God, dedicating a tenth of it? What about the things that require serious sweat and effort and don't necessarily display your glory before men? They were doing one and they were neglecting something else. Weighty matters of the law. That concept in the Bible is called Calvacomer. It means the light and the heavy. And what the rabbis would teach is, if something is true in a light principle, it is also true in the corresponding heavy principle. If you should give a tenth of your deal, mint and cumin, then you should also pay attention to the weighty matters of the law. Love, justice, mercy. Right? Then we hear this phrase. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Have you ever heard anybody say it? I have. I've heard lost people say it and they have no idea what it means. Because we're Greek, the very first thing that we look at is go, wow, the description of that is we're straining out something small and uh, swallowing something big, right? And that's about all we get out of it. Leviticus 11.20 says something. It says something that all of them knew. They know it the same way that Michael, who does not yet drive, knows if daddy runs right through a stop sign, he's done something wrong. Or like my kids, they run right home and tell mom. Said the light was amber, son. They knew it because it was a part of their law. A gnat. Does anybody have any idea how many legs it has? It does not have six. It has four. Well, why would that be important? Why would the God of the universe care how many legs a gnat had? And how on earth could that be important to this Scripture? Because a part of the daily Jewish life was making a distinction between what God called clean and what God called unclean. We've made books, volumes, tried to relate these to biblical diets, all kind of things. I want to tell you, friends, sometimes God just arbitrarily decided because He's God and He gets to, this is unclean and this is clean. Sometimes there is not some dramatic scientific revelation behind it. Sometimes it was simply because He said so. I could prove that to you with the Levitical diet, but I don't have time to do it today. And one of the things that He says in Leviticus 11.20 is, if an insect only has four legs, unless it's a grasshopper, you can't eat it. I don't want you to eat it, period. If it has six legs and it has wings, you can eat it. What on earth? Why would that make a difference? In the smallest areas of their life, they were learning to make distinctions in the function of their daily life between what is clean and what is unclean. And it was a different standard than all the rest of the world. In fact, sometimes in the book of Deuteronomy, things happen like the Bible says, for a Jew walking along the road finds a dead animal freshly killed, he can't eat it. It's unclean. But he may give it to a Gentile to eat. How can it be unclean for the Jew and clean for the Gentile? How can God, the same God, who is righteous, who is justice, who is all of those things, say it's clean for this one and not clean for that one? Because He's God. He had a different standard for this people group meant to display something. So if we're going to strain out a gnat, an unclean animal, but swallow a camel... What is it about a camel that's odd? I mean, they're all over Israel. They ride them. Camels chew the cud. Did you know that? Yeah, they chew the cud just like a cow. Well, that's good, isn't it? Aren't you supposed to chew the cud or an animal supposed to chew the cud if you're going to eat it? But it also had to have a split hoof. 
Animals don't have hooves at all. They have these special padded feet. A camel's foot is really a neat thing. I want to be careful how I describe these so that I don't lose my audience. But as a camel steps on the sand, his feet spread out in every direction. It has a soft pad so that it spreads out over the sand. It's meant to be able to gallop on the sand without sinking in it or being bogged down in it. This passage to a Jew says, in the function of your life, you work to strain out things that are almost insignificant to God. The smallest, easiest things. But you miss the biggest, most important, heaviest, weightiest matters. He's not talking about gnats and camels at all. He's talking about in their lives, they are majoring on minor issues and they are minoring on the major issues. Now, I know you've never seen anything like that in church. Somebody will throw you out of a church because you smoke a cigarette, but they hate people with a different color skin. You tell me where the gnat and where the camel is. I lived across the street from a man in Denham Springs, Louisiana, who was a charter member of his church, a church that claims to go all the way back to the uh, Apostle Peter, who they gave a different name, a Latin name. And when I was selling my house, he walked up to me and said, I hope you're not going to sell it to a... and then threw out a very common racial slur in Louisiana for African-American folks. He said, you know, honestly, I would have no problem selling it to a person from that background, but I do have a problem living next to white trash like you. Dead silence. Why does the man sit in church and have no problem with hating his brother and claiming that he loves God that he can't see? Because he has learned to honor the gnats in his life. He doesn't do this. He doesn't do that. Look at all the gnats I strain out. Meanwhile, he is choking on a camel and has no idea. And everybody's made a compact. I won't point out yours if you don't point out mine. They'll all go to hell for that. There's no question in my mind. You cannot love God that you cannot see if you cannot love your fellow man that you do see. Jesus said you should do the former and the latter. Both are important to Him. He cares about the small details and the big details. But when we read this, we just see gnats and camels. They saw a function behind them. In Corinthians 1.22, that's a place you should turn. And when I say Corinthians and I don't say second, it's because we mean the first. Corinthians 1. Somebody holler out there. Verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Here's a remarkable statement. Paul is a cross-cultural Jewish evangelist. He has a unique upbringing. He's Saul Paulus of Tarsus. This was a Greek city that he was educated in. But he is also the Hebraic Shaul, the student of Gamaliel, an honored position in Hebraic society. Speaking both the language of the Jews fluently and also speaking Greek. 
having had the opportunity to study Greek poets, which had dominated the educational system of the Gentile world, and also studying the Torah of God. Paul was uniquely qualified to observe both groups of people, having had a foot in both worlds, and yet proclaiming till his death, I am a Jew. Listen to what he says. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. Within the Jewish heart, there is a cry that says, show me. Isn't that the Missouri state? Yeah. Show me. All Jews should have moved to Missouri. (laughs) They want to see something different. You know what will teach you that? A lifetime of persecution. If everybody that you ever met said, I care about you, but then they abused you, what do you say the next time somebody says, I care about you? Show me. Greeks, however, sit around discussing ideas. We have meetings before meetings simply to plan out our strategies. Everything for us is diagrammed. A Jew wants you to show him through function, and a Greek wants to talk about it and impress you with his wisdom. James is possibly the most Hebraic book in the Bible with the exception of Hebrews, but since I can't say for certain who wrote Hebrews, I'm going to stick with James. Tell me, does James place action above belief or belief above action? He says, I will show you my faith by what I do. Some have said that Paul was in contradiction with James because in the book of Romans he says, see, a man is justified through faith and faith alone. I was taught in a Baptist school, that Paul and James disagreed on this point. Friends, if the Scripture has even one contradiction in it, then where would that stop? They don't disagree on this point at all. It all rests upon what you call real faith. Paul, as a Jew, would not say that you possess faith if it didn't show up in what you did. That wouldn't be real faith. And James agreed with him. They just expressed it in different ways. I met a man in Israel in this last trip, and his name was Clarence Wagner. He was the president of Bridges for Peace. He started the organization in 1976. A story that he told me began to change the way that I read every passage of Scripture. And I don't think he meant for it to be profound. We were just standing around, drinking coffee, and talking. And he told me that when he was on the plane... Going from New York to Israel, he had a conversation with a woman for about 12 hours. And it started badly. And he was stuck for all 12 hours with this same woman. She says, tell me, Clarence, why are you going to Israel? Clarence spit out this phrase. Bridges for Peace is a Bible-believing organization based in Jerusalem that has been established to build bridges between the Christian and Jewish community through practical deeds expressing God's kindness and mercy. He expected her to be impressed. He had just met with his board in New York. The finest theological minds that he was able to assemble had given him this mission statement. I'm going because we're going to build bridges. The woman looked at him and said, This is great, Clarence, but what do you do? He didn't know what to say. He hadn't done anything. He simply had a mission statement. For the next 11 and a half hours, he struggled 
with her as he thought he would witness Jesus to her and all she wanted to know was, what have you actually done for the Jewish people? He realized quickly his baptism by fire on the El Al airline was that nobody will care what I have to say. They want to see what I do. I think you know from the signs that we have in our church and the messages that we preach, this has had a profound impact on me. This is why I say we place deed above creed. In Acts 17, Paul is speaking with a group of people. I want to show you something that illustrates the way that we think very clearly versus that thought. Turn with me to Acts 17. Tell me when you're there. Don't let me lose you. You'll hurt my feelings. Now, you have to forgive me. I was educated in a state that prides itself in being 50th in education. But Athens, is that the Jewish stronghold of the world? I'm sorry, did, did you all have an answer? No, Athens is not the Jewish stronghold of the world. When you think of Athens, what do you think of? The Greek Olympics, right? The great philosophers in history. Well, a Jewish evangelist shows up in Athens. He's been schooled in both ways of thought. But listen to this dialogue. Starting around uh, verse 19. They took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. You could probably substitute most churches that you know right there. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, in other words, Greeks, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God, Agnosto Theo. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. That's a very logical place to start. We've just given point A, an unknown God. We're going to move to point B. I'm going to explain to you about the unknown God. Would you all agree with me? The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of the heaven and earth and He does not live in temples built by hands. Point C. You can diagram this. A, B, C, D, right down the line. Each successive point. And He is not served by human hands as if He needed anything because He Himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. That makes sense, doesn't it? If there's a God who made everything and He doesn't live in temples, then He doesn't need to be served by you because He made you, right? Logical sense. From one man He made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And He determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. Still, we don't have anything that just defies logic, do we? It's successive thoughts, point upon point. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. There's a beautiful story behind that. I don't have time to tell you. But Paul is even quoting 
from their own poets to support the logic that he is laying out before them. Therefore, what is therefore usually? That's based on these previous points. Now we're coming to a conclusion, right? Linear thought. Since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent. That's probably stressing them a little bit. We're going to get to the breaking point. For, as, for He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising Him from the dead. Think about that for a second. Did Paul ever explain to them why somebody needed to be raised from the dead to prove anything? Did he lay out man's bondage to death and sin? We've moved from a very logical argument to a function-oriented argument. Jesus' function is to deliver us from death, but he hasn't explained why. Listen to verse 32. It's very telling. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear more on this subject. Paul began to lose his audience of Greeks when he departed from his linear train of thought and mentioned something function-oriented, why there needed to be a resurrection without first laying the groundwork. This happens to us all of the time in the Scripture. As we're reading, we miss something because we are a Greek audience being ministered to by Hebrews. So what is the answer? Do we all become Jewish? No. Definitely not. A thousand times no. Hear me. There is one nation of people on the planet that are chosen by God to be Jews. It is not you. What we have is access to their blessings as Gentiles. I do not want you to begin to imitate Judaism as if you were a natural Israelite. The Bible never teaches this. The Bible teaches you that you are a wild olive shoot grafted into their promises. It never says that you make a transformation into a natural Israelite. Never. So if you go home after hearing this message, you get on the internet and you research your family history looking for one drop of Jewish blood so that you can claim you're a Jew, do not expect a smile on my face when we talk. Most of the world in America is confused. And they're confused because what we call Messianic Christianity here usually has no Jews in it. It has Gentiles who have put on these things and run around with shofars claiming to be Jews. The Israeli culture is distinct for a reason. They're distinct because they're an example to the nations. If they became homogenous with the rest of the nations because we imitated them or they imitated us, they would lose their distinctiveness and God never intended this. They are one nation set out differently from all others. So what is the proper response? We recognize that they are one chosen group of people that we were meant to learn from their culture embrace their Messiah, and serve God as what we are, Gentiles. Okay, moving on from there. In Luke 8.42, are you all mad at me or you just don't care? You happy? Steve's happy? Well, if Steve's happy and he came all the way from Argentina and Peru and Brazil, then I'm happy. All of this, we'll get to olives, I promise. Have you ever seen in the store the way they sell olive oil? It has these words on it that I always found odd. Virgin olive oil. Okay, well, I get virgin. I, I, 
can make that association. Extra virgin olive oil. Now I'm a man 32 years old with three children and I still don't quite get that one. But we're going to find out something about olives today that this is necessary for. Okay, that's why we're doing this. In Luke 8.42, we find a woman. i got to get there. Who does something remarkable. And I've taught on this before, so I'll just cover it briefly here. Uh, let's start in with the words, as Jesus. As Jesus was on His way, the crowds almost crushed Him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind Him and touched the edge of His cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. I want you to know that there is a church in the world that has swept out any garment that Jesus may have ever worn. They called it a shroud from a place called Turin. Movies are made about this idea. One that I watched soon as I got born again with Victor Mature, and it was called The Robe. And anywhere that this robe went that Jesus had worn, people were healed. They fell down. They actually had this music behind the robe as it was going. Ah, because the robe was magical! Right? Because we're Greeks and we look at this and we hear the description said, touched the cloak. It must be a magic cloak. We look for scriptural precedent for it. And we find in the book of Acts that Paul prayed over handkerchiefs and other things and people were healed. And so now we have our justification for the veneration of holy cloaks or bones of the apostles or any other ridiculous thing that was necessary to build the church for about a thousand years when the world couldn't read the Bible and depended on a group of Latins to teach them. This woman, however, was not Latin. And Jesus was not Latin. Nor was he American, or Norwegian, or Mexican. Steve tells me that he met lots of people, though, with the name Jesus here recently. Different cultures do different things, friends. You probably wouldn't name your kid Jesus. But in some countries, that's perfectly normal, and it is part of the culture. Not wrong, not different, not anything. It's just part of the culture, and it's expected. Don't you think we need to know the cultural setting behind what's going on here to understand it? Why would a woman come up and touch his clothes? Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master. Which, by the way, is not Master. Peter did not say to Jesus, Master. He said, Rabbi. But the way that we translate that, because we don't use the word Rabbi, is Master. Master... The people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touch me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at His feet. How weird! A woman wants to go and touch Jesus' cloak. She gets healed, but then she doesn't want anybody to know. She wants to be unnoticed. Is there anything about that scenario that makes sense to you? Tell me the truth. You got a life-threatening disease, right? You feel as if you just got healed. Do you want to go hide in a corner and make sure nobody knows? Do you? Does that make any sense to you? Don't read this book without question. Don't look at this book without engaging the text. All learning comes from when you embrace what is in here and when it doesn't make sense, you ask why. It is a religious spirit, a knack-finding spirit that says, oh, don't even question it. 
No! Learning occurs when you ask questions. In fact, Jews teach their kids to ask questions throughout every religious meal. Why? Because then they learn why things work. She didn't want to be noticed. In the presence of... I'm sorry, let's see. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at His feet in the presence of all the people. She told why she had touched Him and how she had been instantly healed. That makes no sense why that would be important. How about just that she's healed? Why does she have to explain why she touched Him? Why does she have to explain that she wanted to go unnoticed and all of those things? Then He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Am I the only one that would read this and have questions about it? No, we just read it and we don't care. We move on to the... Give me the minimum. What is it that I have to do to avoid hell? That's what I want to know. Really, Pastor, could you just boil it down to that? Could you write on a certificate the date I was baptized, the date I walked in Nile, and then I got my fire insurance just like Nick would sell you life insurance, and I'm done? Isn't that where most people are? This church will not be that way. You want to know what motivated them. You want to know why this is important. Why even include it? Numbers 15 says that every Jewish man had to wear one of these. Except this was not a prayer shawl in Jesus' day. It was a literal garment that was worn. How do we know that? Because Numbers 15 says if you're going to be a part of Israel and a man, you have to wear it. In fact, I want corners, four of them, off of your garment with blue thread in them. And they will symbolize your authority and the commandments God gave you as an Israelite man. Why did this woman go and touch the edge of his garment? Because they contained knots that symbolized the mitzvot. And they contained a blue thread that symbolized God's heavenly anointing. And what she is literally saying, much like Ruth did with Boaz, is, Master, Rabbi, I want to come under your covering because I believe in your wings are found healing, which is what Matthew 3 says. Now, that's pregnant in this story. But you don't know it if you don't know the culture. You know what else you don't know? Why would somebody want to be healed but not want anybody to know they were healed? Because the law says if you have an issue of blood and you touch someone else, they're unclean and they have to go outside the camp for a certain amount of days. How thick was this crowd? So thick that it was pressing against Jesus as if it were going to crush him. How many people do you think that woman bumped into on her way to Jesus? According to the ritual law, she made each one unclean. How happy would you be if you're on your way to go see Jesus or to the marketplace or anybody and somebody bumps into you and because they touched you, now you've got to go spend so many days outside the camp. You might not be happy, huh? She was worried about being mistreated. So she did this secretly. But her trust in Him... Do you imagine what trust it took to risk angering the entire crowd simply to touch Jesus because you believed, number one, that it was worth risking the world's anger for you to get to the king, and number two, that if you could just get there, your whole life would change? The thing that everybody thought you were unclean for, you would no longer be unclean? Now, how awesome is that? That garment had a function. The description's irrelevant. Its function is what was important, and Jews were taught to look for function. Does that change the way that you read that story? Does it add meaning to it? Does it make it a little more vivid for you, a little more understandable? It does for me too. Matthew 23 says, well, let's just read it real quick. 
or maybe not all that quick. I've got you for another 35, 40 minutes. It really doesn't matter, does it? <laughs> Matthew 23, 5 says something about those tassels. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have all men call them rabbi. What we hear is that there are long tassels and wide phylacteries. And what does that mean to us as Greeks? Well, it means that there are short tassels and there are long tassels. And there are thin phylacteries and there are wide phylacteries. But that's not at all what the point Jesus was making was. What is the function of a tassel? It was to show your authority from God. So why would a Jew make one wide? I got great big authority, baby! I'm smart. You're stupid. I'm the instructor. You are the dumb child. You read this in context and tell me that that's not exactly what he's rebuking. What are phylacteries for? Oh, dead silence. Phylacteries are what you wrapped around your arms as a Jew and put on your forehead in a box. They had written on them the Word of God. What a silly, religious, uptight festival, right? Well, why do you have bumper stickers on your car? Why do you wear Christian t-shirts? Hmm? Anybody got a cross on their neck? How about if you take my big fat Bible and you put it on your forehead? Do you think you might act differently in Luby's today when somebody sits in front of you and is ugly? How about at the restaurant when they get your order wrong? You got a Bible stuck to your arm showing the whole world that I'm supposed to live by this thing right here. Might you act differently? So is it really a stupid religious ritual? Well, it can be. If we all get different color Bibles, $30,000 pendant brooches on them, because we're not allowed any other jewelry or some other ridic ridiculous religious rule, then it becomes ridiculous. But if you embrace these things with a pure heart, could you learn something? Of course. So what is Jesus saying? Why were their phylacteries wide? They wanted to show everybody else they adhered to the Word of God more than they did. See, we learn something by embracing the culture. And today, I want you to learn something about olives. So turn with me to Exodus 25. <coughs> you ever been to a church with lots and lots of rules? I went to churches with lots and lots of rules. And I've been to schools, private Christian schools, with lots of rules. And if you tell children that they can't wear jabot jeans, that was popular in my day, I know it dates me. It was not parachute pants, it was jabot jeans. Parachute pants was Darren. <laughs> Bell-bottom pants was Steve. If you tell children they cannot do this, 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 what do they do? They find the one area that they can change to express themselves, right? In my school, we had to wear these horrible pants. I mean, horrible. And the girls had to wear these ugly plaid skirts. And we all had the same kind of shirts. But you know what they didn't dictate to us? What kind of belt we wore. So you were cool if your belt had a shotgun shell emblem on it right here. But you were out. I mean, buddy, you were out if you had a plain belt. Human nature is to find some unique distinction to try to set yourself above everyone else. The same thing goes on with us as went on with religious Israel. God was after the intent of the heart, though. In Exodus 25, starting in the first 
verse. The Lord said to Moshe, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. That's why it's hard to preach on tithing, friends. If you are in touch with Jesus, if you are in love with Jesus, your heart is supposed to tell you to tithe. The preacher should never have to. So what does it say in a church if we have to preach on tithing every two weeks? Hmm, something's not right with the people's hearts. That's why in this church we don't pass an offering as tempting as it is. I'd like to put it at the door as a, a, a toll before you leave. <laughs> or better yet, as an entrance toll. We put it over in the corner with one sign above it that mentions Deuteronomy 14. Anybody read Deuteronomy 14, 27? <laughs> Don't neglect the Levites. <laughs> Their inheritance is what you put in the offering. That's what it teaches. Your heart is supposed to teach you that. But like all religious people, we get used to sitting down right next to the fire and not noticing its heat. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair. Anybody in here just dying to get some goat hair? What if we call it mohair and make it into a sweater, though? Oh, that you might like, huh? Especially ladies. Or cashmere. Huh? That's Okay. See, it's all about what you get used to in culture. This is valuable to them. You know what you use goat hair for then? Made the best tents in the world. During the summer, it shrunk up and the wind could pass through your tent. During cold weather, it expanded. This is contrary to normal kind of uh, reaction. And that made it easier to keep your tent warm. So they all had black goat hair from Kedar. And their tents were black like the tents of Kedar. You had to know that, didn't you? Ramskins dyed red and hides of sea cows. There's an interesting one. Acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, for the fragrance, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastplate. What was the olive oil for? For a light. Exodus 27.20 says that this olive oil must be clear. So olive oil, it's first real use in the nation of Israel was there would be a place where God's presence would dwell. Under Moses, it was called the tabernacle. And so under David, it was as well. By Solomon's day, it had become a permanent building. And there was a candle. Not a candle, that's not right. There was a lantern called the lampstand. Jews call it a menorah. And it had in it olive oil. And the olive oil had to burn before the presence of God, so it was associated with God's presence. In Exodus 27:20 20 says, don't bring any olive oil. Bring only clear olive oil. Turn with me to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 24. I am so proud you're taking notes, Elizabeth. My nieces are going to be great Bible students. My little Rebecca loves the Lord, and you can see it in her eyes. And she asked a question the other day that was a great question. Around her age, people start to wonder and want to know, when do I have to step out and do something publicly? She was asking about baptism. You know, the religious spirit baptizes your kids whether they ask or not because you want to show everybody you've done something right. The heart that's in love with God waits for their heart to prompt them and then responds appropriately. How cool is that? God is at work in my family, and I am excited about that. God's at work in this church, and I'm excited about that. 
I want to encourage you before we move on. You pray. Pray for your family. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for people around you and God will do the miraculous. I promise He will. He is a restoring God and He will put things together that were so broken you never thought they could exist together because that's what He does. And if you don't think it's true, go look in the mirror. You're a testimony that it happens. You were broken and He fixed you. Are you all in Deuteronomy 24? Starting in verse 1. No, not right. Leviticus, no, Deuteronomy 24.19, sorry. One day I'll have this book memorized, like you already do. Why is this not making sense to me? Ah, I think I got it. Yes, I have it. <laughs> Deuteronomy 24.19, were y'all in suspense? I wish it on purpose. I didn't. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. What did that say? You're going to do something so that God may bless you? We ask to be blessed without doing anything. The Bible tells us to do something so that He can bless you. That wasn't my point. My point's in verse 20. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest your grapes, and he goes on to teach about that, how do you get olives off of the tree? You beat it. You need this clear olive oil for the anointing oil and for burning in the presence of God in the temple. But when you go out to harvest your olives, you can only beat on that tree one time. And that's supposed to be enough. One time, not two beatings. Y'all just file that away. There's one beating for all time. Turn with me to Judges 9. Tell me when you're there. Don't give up on me. Go there. Anybody know who Jerob Baal is? There's not an overwhelming response. Why? Jerob Baal, not a name that you know? How about Gideon? Is that a name you know? Yeah. Gideon had two names. His given name was Jerob Baal. And in uh, Judges 9.1, Abimelech is the son of Gideon. But he's not the son by Gideon's normal wife. He's the son by a slave that lived in Gideon's house. Y'all with me so far? So Abimelech, Gideon's son, but the son through a slave woman. Hmm. Abimelech, son of Jeroboam, by the way, that's Gideon, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them and to all of his mother's clan, ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you? To have all 70 of Jeroboam's sons rule over you or just one man? Remember, I'm your flesh and blood. He's going to a town where his mother, the slave woman, was from. He said, hey, you want Gideon's other sons, those 70 guys, to rule over you? How about me? I'm like you. I'm from Shechem. I'm your own flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, he is our brother. They gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal-berith 
And Abimelech used it to hire reckless adventurers who became his followers. I don't know, but I suspect that if we look into those original words, it doesn't describe the billionaire who owns Virgin Airlines who is a reckless adventurer, or Howard Hughes. I think it denotes something more of a amoral character. You follow me? Okay. He went to his father's home in Ophrah, and uh, on one stone he murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jeroboam. How exciting is that? Gideon, great man of God, had one son who killed the other 70. Not all that exciting, right? But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar of Shechem to crown Abimelech king. You got me? We are crowning a king born of a slave woman. When Jotham was told about this, he climbed up to the top of Mount Gerizim. What is Mount Gerizim in Israel's history? Anybody? Y'all are all just scared because it's Sunday's morning. This is where the blessings were announced to Israel for being obedient to the law. Mount Ebal was where the curses were announced. So if your whole nation was told about blessings from one mountain, every time that mountain was mentioned, what might you think of? And if they had been on Mount Ebal, what might you think of? So Jotham, the youngest natural son of Gideon, the rightful heir, goes to a mount of blessing and shouts to them, Listen to me, citizens of Shechem, that God may listen to you. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, Be our king. If you're taking notes, the olive tree is the anointed Israel. Nobody's taking notes? <laughs> okay. But the olive tree answered, Should I give up my oil by which both gods and men are honored to hold sway over the other trees. In other words, Jotham, the youngest natural son, the one who should be heir, is pronouncing from the Mount of Blessings a parable. You thought Jesus was the first one that gave parables? He's announcing a parable to teach Israel something. They're rejecting right now an anointed king. Next, the tree said to me, or said to the fig tree, come and be our king. The fig tree in Bible history is always religious Israel. Olive tree, spiritual Israel. Fig tree, religious Israel. But the fig tree replied, should I give up my fruit? So good and sweet hold sway over the other trees. We have a presentation for a spiritual king in Israel. Now, not going to answer the call. We have a presentation for a religious king in Israel. No, not going to answer the call. Then the trees came and said to the vine. Vine in Israel is always natural Israel. Spreads out all over the earth. Then the trees came and said to the vine, Come and be our king. But the vine answered, Should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and men, to hold sway over the trees? We have a call going out to Israel in this moment. you want a spiritual anointed king? No. Do you want a religious king? No. Will you at least take a natural descendant of Israel to be your king? No. Let's see who they chose for their king in this moment. Finally, all the trees came to the thorn bush. Come and be our king. What's a thorn bush represent in the Bible? You don't have to be a theologian to know that. Curses. Sin. In the Bible, olive trees and olive oil were prized. And they were prized because they were symbolic 
of God's presence in the temple. In the temple, a candle, labra, if you will, a menorah, had to be lit at all times, symbolizing the presence of God. And the fuel for it was olive oil. God's first preference for Israel is that they would have a spiritual anointed king like the olive tree. Another requirement would be that he would be of the religion of Israel, a Jew. A third requirement, like the vine, that he would be a natural descendant. But Israel wanted sin as their king instead. With that in mind, I want to read you something out of Genesis 8 and then we'll tie these subjects together. Aside from the olive tree being something that represents a spiritual anointed king or the anointing oil of God, in Genesis 8 verse 10, Noah is in an ark. It says, He waited seven more days and again set out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. After the whole earth got destroyed, one thing remained that showed that there was still hope for the earth. There was an olive leaf carried back to Noah, the man of God, by a dove. This is as if the Holy Spirit is reminding us there is still anointing left on the earth. There is still a spiritual presence in one people group on the earth. All trees have characteristics. When you think of an oak, you think of something that is durable, something that is strong. Why do you plant pine trees? Because you want something to grow quickly. (laughs) Certainly not for their quality. To grow quickly. They grow very tall. Quickly. Every tree is known by something. Olive trees, so that you know, since you don't grow them, are remarkably tenacious. You can plant them in almost any kind of soil and they take root. You can put them on mountain terraces and they dig down and take root. The root system is unlike any other system that I know of. It survives for thousands of years. Thousands. Not hundreds. Thousands. Because they're all connected. When you look at an olive grove, they all share the exact same root system. An oak tree is individual. The oak tree in my neighbor's yard and the oak tree here have their own root system. Olive trees share each other's roots. They all become part of one large living organism. In fact, when you're looking at one olive tree, what you're really looking at is an offshoot of all of the olive trees that are there. Olive trees multiply at astounding rates because they drop their olives and all around the base, little olive trees shoot up and they stretch down in and become part of the other root system. Heat does not kill olive trees. They can grow in intense heat. They need very little water to stay alive. They're useful for light because they provide candles. Furniture. Most of the wood furnishings in the Bible are made from olive wood. If you go to Bethlehem, the town that Jesus was born in, olive wood is everywhere. The doors to the Temple of Solomon were made of olive wood. The tree that Jesus was crucified on, you could make a very decent argument, was an olive tree. They provide shade, all kind of wonderful things, etc. Turn with me to Psalm 52 with those things in mind. Jews think in terms of function rather than description. We've made that clear. So in Psalm 52, 
starting in verse 6. The righteous will see and fear. They will laugh at Him saying, Here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. There's a day when the righteous will laugh at all of the business people of the world that lived by a dog-eat-dog philosophy because God will bring them to nothing. But verse 8 says, But I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. I am like an olive tree. To the Greek mind, we read this and we picture the courtyard of God with a giant olive tree in it, and it means nothing. To the Hebraic mind, what he is saying is, I am tenacious. I am rooted into something that is thousands and hundreds of thousands strong. I am a force that multiplies. I can survive in heat with little water. And I'm useful for light, food, shade, anything. Because I'm planted in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. I will praise you for what you have done. In your name I will hope for your name is good. I will praise you in the presence of your saints. How about Psalm 128? Turn there. When David says he's like an olive tree, he doesn't mean he's like a pretty piece of wood. He means that he's tenacious. He can grow anywhere because of the house of God. That he's connected to something larger than himself. In Psalm 128, Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in His ways. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. You could look out the window near any olive grove and you would see little trees that were just like the bigger tree that stood next to it. To the Christian, to the believer in the Lord, you produce children that are like you. What does that say if your kids are horrible? It's a little bit like looking in a mirror. But what does it say if your kids are serving and loving God? Well, they bring you honor in your old age. Isn't that what the Proverbs say? An olive tree means more than just an olive tree in the Bible. In fact, listen to this in Habakkuk 3. It's a favorite song of a friend of mine. Painting the worst of pictures, the most desolate of pictures. Habakkuk 3 verse 17 says this, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on my vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food. This is saying though spiritual failure occurs, though natural failure occurs, though religious failure occurs, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in my God and Savior. Habakkuk was writing about the worst setting that could be. A nation was coming in to destroy them. They would destroy the natural descendants of Israel. They would try to destroy the religion of Israel. If they could, they would destroy the anointing of Israel, yet he would rejoice. Olives had something to do with every part of your life in Israel. So now we're in the New Testament. And I want to read you scriptures you've heard all of your life, you've watched in movies, and you tell me if they don't have a new sense of meaning. Luke 22. Turn just a couple more times with me. Luke 22, we're going to be in verse 39. David's fast. He's there. Where are the rest of you? you got to stay awake with me a few more minutes. We are getting to the point. Luke 22, starting in verse 39. Jesus went out as usual 
to the Mount of Olives. Why do you think it is called the Mount of Olives? Because there's olive trees all over it. This is the site at which Zechariah and Malachi both predicted that God would visit Israel. This is the site where Jesus ascended from Israel and the site where the Bible says He will return. And what is planted there? Olives, because olives have to do with God's present presence. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and His disciples followed Him. It was His usual custom to go there. On reaching the place, He said to them, Pray that you do not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to Him and strengthened Him. And being in anguish, He prayed more earnestly. And His sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus went as usual to the Mount of Olives. Turn with me to John 18. Y'all familiar with that story? Jesus sweat as if it were drops of blood. Just giving you some context before we read it in Matthew. But you're going to John 18. Tell me when you're in verse 1. It's easy to find the Gospels. They're all together. When He had finished praying, Jesus left with His disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove. And He and His disciples went to it. Now Judas, who betrayed Him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with His disciples. Are you getting the picture that Jesus often went to this place? The Psalms teach us their daily life taught us about olives. What do you think they talked about when they were there often if they were His disciples? They probably learned how to become like an olive tree in the house of the Lord. How to raise up little olive shoots like them. They learned visually through all of those examples. But that's not the neatest part. The neatest part is in Matthew 26. And we'll read this together. And it will be our last scripture today. So who's in Matthew 26? Anointing oil for lamps in the temple. That woman who touched Jesus' garment, the edge of His garment, how thick was the crowd? Thick, yeah. So thick that it might crush them. Jesus felt something happen to him. What did he say? I felt power go out from me. How about that? One translation says virtue. (laughs) Let's compromise. Virtuous power. How about that? You in Matthew 26? Same setting as the others. Starting in verse 30. When they had sung a hymn, that's the great Hillel, by the way, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Does it sound pretty clear that Jesus knows what's happening? What's ahead of Him? The crucifixion is not going to catch Him by surprise? Listen to Peter's proclamation. Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said, so we blame Peter, but they all said they would never disown him. They'd die with him. Then Jesus went with His disciples to a place called Gethsemane. What an interesting place, Gethsemane. 
You think that that's probably just filler? Oh, it's got to be. I mean, none of the others mentioned it. Hit that light, Adam. Gethsemane. Gethsemane in Hebrew means something. In English, it just is a name. In Hebrew, it means the place where you press olives. Why did you press olives in the Bible? Well, you pressed them for all kinds of things, but the first and foremost reason was to symbolize the presence of God. What we have on the board here behind us is an olive press. You'll notice at the base of it, there's a pool. Above it are stacks of what look like burlap sacks. Those contain the olives. The long pole that is set in a fulcrum and extends out has four distinct notches in the end. What you see hanging from the very end is a stone weight. This is because olives are pressed to get oil out of them. And there are four distinct pressings. I'm going to explain that, but I want to read you this. Then Jesus went with His disciples to the place called Gethsemane. And He said to them, Sit here while I go over there to pray. He then took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with Him, and He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then He said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with Me. So He went to a place and He began to pray and was sorrowful and overwhelmed. Does that sound like He's being pressed? It does. When you press an olive, you get something that's useful to the Lord. You get something that is meant to burn brightly and shine the light of the Lord in the temple. You could call that His first pressing. Going a little further. So we're at a place close. Now we're going to go a little further. He fell with His face to the ground and prayed. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. We just added a stone. Now we're at a second pressing. The weight is increasing upon Him. A weight that belongs upon us. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Second pressing. Then He returned to His disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, who had just promised to give his life. Watch and pray that you do not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed. This is his third pressing. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. The weight keeps increasing. Got three stones on him now. When He came back, He again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So He left them and went away once more and prayed the third time. Now it says third time because it's the third time He went to the disciples and back, but it's actually the fourth time that He's praying. The fourth stone is upon Him. And what did He say? The same thing. Father, if it's possible for this cup to pass, but nevertheless, Your will be done. When Jesus was pressed by a crowd earlier in Luke 8 to the point where He was crushed, what came out of Him? Goodness, power, virtue. Now at the moment where He is about to die, He's in a place called the Olive Press. He is the spiritual king of Israel. He's the religious king of Israel. He's the natural descendant of Israel, the vine. He's the only one there that is not a thorn bush. 
He is the rightful king. But stone upon stone upon stone is being stacked upon him. God's will, Isaiah says, is to crush him completely. Because what comes out of the first pressing is something that is useful for God. What comes out of the second pressing is what you put in the lights that go in your houses, in the medicine that you give to your children. What comes out of the third pressing is the food that you eat and medicine for your livestock. What comes out of the fourth pressing is the fuel that you start fires with. With no pressure on Jesus at all, virtue went out from Him, just from people being around Him. With all the stones upon man, of mankind's weight of sin upon Him, like an olive being pressed, getting every last ounce out, all that came out was something that was useful for us. Nevertheless, the Lord's will be done. What happened when Peter was pressed and all of the other disciples? One of them runs from this setting naked. The others run and hide when they're pressed. Saints, God has poured something into us of the Spirit of Jesus that no matter how pressed, what comes out is not supposed to be bits of olive, but the olive's precious anointing oil. The reason you have olive oil that is called virgin is it means the first time this olive was ever pressed, this is the purest the clearest anointing oil. And each time you had to put more force on it, the natural way of things is that you get more pulp from the olive in it, more flesh from the olive in it. No matter how much Jesus was pressed, it was like it was the first pressing. What came out was God's will. How do you measure up against those standards? Weight of your finances are on you and you are anointed. God's will be done. The weight of the health of your body is upon you. There's a little more flesh in you than you would like. The weight of your friends not receiving you is upon you. A little more flesh than you would like. Do we get to a place where there's nothing good left in your life except something meant to start a fire? It's not supposed to be this way. He was completely pressed for us. And here's the beautiful thing. What came out of Him through that experience is now in you. So when you're pressed, the same thing's supposed to come out. Nevertheless, your will be done, Lord. And that's how we will raise our children in the house of the Lord and they will grow up just like us. See, when we're pressed by the world, the song says and the Scripture says, I am pressed, but I am not crushed. I am persecuted, but I am not abandoned. We are all reading right now the memoirs of people that were crushed until their flesh was dead. Killed. Every one of them. And what came out was the anointed work that we're reading right now. Life-sustaining light that brings us the presence of God. We need to make up our minds this day when we're pressed, what's going to come out. And there's only one way to get good, clear oil to come out of you. You've got to get more of Jesus' Spirit in you. Y'all stand to your feet. Let's pray.